I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how do we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 64, we read an article from the New Yorker, The Republican Identity Crisis After Trump by Nicholas Lehman. came out earlier this week, October 23rd, 2020. All right, so we have a change of pace, different type of episode today. We're going to read this article that is brand new, mostly because we had a, a guest lined up and he needed to reschedule, which is fine if these things happen. But we wanted to make sure that we kept the wheels turning, so we decided to do this article. This uh, journalist, Nicholas Lehman, has been a staff writer at The New Yorker for more than 20 years. I haven't really followed his stuff. I can't say that I know much about him. But apparently he's interested in some of the same stuff that we are because he, he wrote a really interesting article in The New Yorker. And this is what we're going to cover today. And the thesis question really is, did Trump's, he says, did Trump's ascension represent a significant change in the party's orientation, Republican Party? And if so, will the change be temporary or lasting? I think this is a question that's on a lot of our minds, you know, and I think this is a good conversation to have on on election eve we've got about a week and a half before election day and many people have already voted so the question that uh, kind of hangs over us is if if trump wins we probably have a decent idea what's going to happen for the next at least year so <laughs> mm -hmm. if uh, if trump loses where does the republican party go from here and and the reason that we want to get a little bit more political today i think is because there's just really interesting conversations going on, I think, including on this podcast. And, and there's just, I think, a lot of folks who are thinking about this question of what happens next and, and a lot of folks who are trying to position themselves. Definitely. It's, um, I mean, I, I was thinking we should do something related to the election. It's kind of a big deal. It's where all this theory and uh, ideas come out, you know, or what do people like? Where do we go from here? Like we say in the intro. So... Yeah, I think it's a it's a big question because I um and Lehman starts the article talking about sort of the some of the issues we've talked about here before the big shift that came when Trump was elected or when he was nominated really I mean you know we had, he's coming off of Bush and Romney and McCain leading the party as sort of the carrying the old fusionist flag like we talked about in the Frank Meyer episode you know the the idea of libertarianism fused with social conservatism and also national security hawks, the three elements that came together to make the party for the whole Cold War and for some time thereafter. And Lehman kind of gets at the point that I think we've, I think uh, Rachel Bovard brought this up too, is that these things came together because we are all faced with a common enemy, world socialism. And while libertarians and social conservatives might not agree on a ton of things, they both agreed that the menace of socialism was really an existential threat to the free world. And so that sort of papered over a lot of differences. And I think Meyer explained it in a, I think that there's more, there's more overlap than we sometimes think, you know, just often like when you're 
feuding with somebody who's pretty close to you, you emphasize the differences and ignore the similarities. And it, there are a lot of similarities between people who want liberty and people who want social conservative ideas. You know, they, they kind of, Meyer had them as depending on each other. But, you know, as the Cold War ends, the real thing that brought us together is no longer a threat. I mean, you know, Red China is still a threat, but it's a different kind of threat than the sort of expansive world socialism that this, the Cold War faced us up against. So now as we kind of butt heads against each other and realign the parties, so, you know, is this still something that holds the parties together? Previous Republican nominees have thought so, and so is the party establishment. And, you know, at the same time, the Democrats are were kind of on the same side when it came to things like free trade and globalization. Then along comes Trump and shakes everything up. Yeah, and so Lehman here goes directly at some of the Republican orthodoxies, or at least what we thought were conservative orthodoxies, because he, he relates the story of, and many of us remember this, that uh, George W. Bush, when he won in 2004, he announced to the press that he'd earned some political capital in the campaign, and now I, I intend to spend it. And yeah. uh, the, the two things, two principal things that he really went after was privatizing Social Security, which, look, I'll be the first to say that, I mean, I love that he was trying to tackle entitlements. I mean, that was, to, to my mind, hallelujah, we have we have a president <laughs> who's going to take this seriously. But, you know, it landed like a dead cat on, on a front porch, and Republicans were just kind of like, look at my watch, I time to go, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, and obviously the Democrats, um, you know, attacked it vociferously. But then the other, the other issue that uh, George W. Bush wanted to spend his capital on was immigration, so getting a, a pathway to citizenship. And... I think it was really interesting, Lehman, it's interesting that he started that way because I was kind of like, where's he going with this exactly? Uh, but then he went on to say, you know, Jeb Bush was, his campaign in 2016 was essentially an extension of that, only, as he says here, friendlier than his brother had been, both to markets and to Latino voters, being that Jeb's wife is uh, is from South America. And Donald Trump made precisely opposite bets. <laughs> First of all, in social security, he defended social security and said, he's not, he's going to defend, he's not going to let anyone touch it, which was interesting. And then on, of course, on immigration, he said, he's going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. And he, that we haven't had a, a president, obviously, at least in our memory, who was as, as stridently sort of like stop immigrants from crossing the border. And then, as you said, his position on trade, I mean, he's a, he views uh, most of our trade deals as uh, other countries taking advantage of America. And that's certainly true about China, but even many of our allies and all of these cross uh, what had been Republican and conservative orthodoxy up to this point. And uh, as noted here on foreign policy, Trump was an aggressive isolationist, (laughs) which of course I welcomed, but it's a a massive change from the neoconservatives coming from George W. Bush and of course, Trump attacked big business in a way that none of the other Republicans had. And and now, obviously, that's catching steam, too. But he says there's no question that Trump beat Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, Marco Rubio, Chris Christie, Ted Cruz, John Kasich, and all the other aspirants of a few of these, you know, John Kasich and so forth have, have just gone ahead to endorse Biden even. But in other words, this guy is making the argument, this, this journalist is making the argument that like, all these conservative orthodoxies that we thought were the reason people voted Republican. Well, it turned out Trump was like, I don't think that's why. <laughs> and, and he won. 
Yeah, it's it's he was directly opposed to two of those three pillars. You know, like you said, the isolationism it, it, instead of the uh, sort of aggressive internationalism, he was not a libertarian by any stretch of the imagination. And even the social conservative thing, he's he's done some things that I think social conservatives can be happy about, but they're that's not the image he ever presented, you know, before 2016. Right, right. And there was plenty of us who didn't believe that even those uh, nods to social conservatism were anything but a, a head fake and that he would go back to being a New York liberal as soon as he got into office. So, I yeah, mean, I mean, that I turned thought. out not to be true, but uh, <laughs> everything else was, I mean, so really he ran against the Republican Party from inside it, even to a, a greater extent than Bernie Sanders ran against the Democratic Party establishment, because at least he was sort of on some of the same issues, but more so as the Democrats were. Trump was just sort of doing the opposite. And the Republican primary voters said, yeah, that's what we want, which is yeah, a, but to your to your point, too. Like he he absolutely tripled down on some of the social conservative stuff where I, I believe over the years what's happened and I, I think that this is a legitimate criticism of the Republican Party over the years, is that many promises were made to social conservatives. You're a part of the party, you know, we're mm -hmm. making all these promises, support the Iraq war, support tax cuts, you know, and, and we're making all these promises about judges, about, about eliminating abortion, you know, about stopping gay marriage and that sort of thing. All of, all of which we just were from the evangelical standpoint was a complete loss. I mean, every, every bit of it was just, loss after loss after loss and even george w bush being the born again conservative or born again evangelical that he is i mean he 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 didn't touch like what trump was just unabashedly i am just gonna i'm gonna put pro-life judges i'm gonna put conservative judges on the court and i'm just gonna do it all day and of course mcconnell was was a leader in that too he stood by i think I think Trump stood by Kavanaugh in a way that even George Bush wouldn't have done. I, I don't, I mm -hmm. think that probably any Mitt Romney, any other Republican president would have pulled that nomination and Trump stood firm. You know, he moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem, something that George W. Bush and many other presidents had promised to do, but never really intended to do. And, and Trump just did, said, I'm doing it and we're doing it today. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and religious freedom, he's been out the front and he picked Mike Pence, who is, you know, known almost entirely for his, for his evangelical, like Christian, um, bona fides. So, I mean, I think it, uh, on the one hand, you're kind of like, w I've heard this criticism so many times from, from democratic friends and, and there is some legitimacy to it, but they say, you know, how can Christians support a man who, who has, you know, this level of, of, you know, personal like failings and, and he's about the least Christian in his personal life as any president we've ever had. And normally you would find that abhorrent, but somehow you, well, I, I think, I think the reason for a lot of evangelicals is like, well, he delivers <laughs> I mean, for a lot of Christian voters, moral majority, whatever, like he actually is gone farther than even evangelical himself, George W. Bush. So, I mean, in that way, like Trump has, it, it takes a guy who's willing to break glass to just break glass and do it. Yeah. And, and, uh, just not caring about the attacks, I guess it's, it's like you said, I think every other previous election in our lifetime, if you're a 
social conservative voter, Christian, who votes on that as his top issue, your choices have been one party who's against what you're for and another party who says they're for what you're for. But then, like you said, they don't actually do anything. So you still vote the one that says they're for you because at least there's a chance. And this time it paid off. But it's always been that sort of thing. And I've, I've thought that a lot about the abortion issue over the years is that I think there's a lot of people in both parties who just rather have the issue to fundraise on sure. than, than to actually do anything about. And I think there's a lot of pro-life so-called Republicans who uh, are terrified that Roe v. Wade to be overturned. They don't want it to be because they're scared in the fight, even if they actually personally do believe in that cause. So, yeah, I I think for for whatever reason, it worked out in that instance. But it's still a massive reordering of the party because he's still those other two parts of it are still gone. Trump, there are no libertarians in in Washington except uh, Justin Amish. (laughs) And he's leaving. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a there's a few. Republican congressmen who would probably still call themselves small L libertarians, but there's there's nobody really sticking up for that, and that's going to eventually come due when the deficit just gets out of control and it starts to eat away at everything else. But you know, I guess for now, it's proven in a successful electoral strategy, and the the national security thing. I think it's. I mean, part of it is also the success of fiscal libertarian policy. You know, I mean. This article mentions how Trump was the only one in 2016 who wouldn't sign Norquist's pledge to yeah, never raise yeah. taxes, but he still hasn't raised them. And in fact, he he signed the tax cut that Congress passed. So it's, I mean, part of it, I think he didn't sign the pledge, and nobody cared because we've already cut taxes a lot since that pledge got started. Well, yeah, and to boot, like here, the journal says. Trump signed into law a cut in the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%, which we remember, far lower than what Reagan was able to get. And then he quotes Glenn Hubbard, who has been a, you know, a conservative free market guy and, and helped Jeb and was on the Romney campaign and everything. Glenn Hubbard said, Jeb would have given you the tax cut. I know because I wrote it, but Trump just doubled it, <laughs> which again, like... Uh, other presidents make promises, but they're not willing to take the heat. And Trump, he does not care about taking the heat at all. So he just went in and, and I mean, I remember I was on the Hill at the time and, and being part of the debate and Trump was like, I want 20%. And uh, I think Republicans would have been willing to go a little bit higher than that. But he's like, no, 20%. <laughs> and at the end, it ended up being 21%. But, you know, it, I, I like this uh, paragraph too, or this little discussion about he says Trump's Republican opponents in 2016 had been living in a world created by the re- Republican donor class and following Mitt Romney's loss in 2012, Reince Priebus and the RNC, they commissioned this uh, autopsy report, which many of us in, in, in Washington are familiar with, but it, it basically called for the party to reaffirm its identity as pro-market, government skeptical, and ethnically and culturally inclusive. I mean, the main takeaway that was covered over and over again in the, in the media was that uh, we needed to, the Republicans needed to moderate on immigration. And that was taken basically as, as gospel. Frankly, I'll be the first to admit, I took it as gospel too. But as, yeah, as Lehman too. says, this left an opening for Trump to ignore a series of supposedly inviolable Republican bromides. He didn't talk about the need for limited government or for balancing the budget. He didn't talk about the United States as the guarantor 
of Freedom Worldwide. He didn't extol free trade. He didn't court the Koch brothers. He didn't sign a no tax pledge, as you just said. And he said, we're going to build a wall and stop immigration. <laughs> so, I mean, this goes to show us how limited our, our ability is to predict the future. And I remember in 2004, I remember so, so many talking heads saying that there was going to be a Republican majority into infinity. And that lasted one cycle. And here mm-hmm. we are now, I mean, over and over again, like I'm just hearing, I listened to another couple of podcasts today. And of course it's the same story. Like, Biden's going to win and Republicans, you know, they're, they're dying out and they're going to be <laughs> in the minority forever. And I'm just like, that's not how the world works. Parties are not, um, we've talked about this on a previous podcast a couple times ago, but they're, they, they don't sit in one place. They, they continually evolve and we don't even know what, I mean, I, in a million years, wouldn't have predicted Trump. So in a million years, we can't predict what's going to happen in in 2024 or 2028, let alone like, you know, beyond that. Yeah. Just the, uh, the way this was set up, the way the article was set up it, talking about the two things Bush promised after 04. And I, I remember that, that press conference, but yeah, the two, uh, more permissive immigration policy and privatizing social security. It's like, he didn't really run on either of those. You know, the, yeah. the, the election yeah. was mostly about the war. So if you want to say, you know, I've got some political capital, it's, you know, the surge that, Right, I get right, that, right. you know, and that that was the the main thing. It was weird that he kind of ran on that. At least w- with the stuff Trump ran on, he mostly uh, told you what he was going to do. And if you didn't like it, you didn't vote for him, you know. But to the extent he's done it, like with ju- with the judges, he put out a list. Couldn't be more explicit than that. Yeah. <laughs> and if people voted for it, then it's like, well, these are some of the folks you're going to get. And we got them. Right, right. You know, and it's funny that he was shrewder in that than the professional politicians because they usually at least know which way the wind's blowing and privatizing social security i thought was a great idea in 04 i i don't think it's a great idea now but you know there's there's changes that need to be made but well yeah i mean it's clearly going nowhere because bush couldn't deliver when he got a huge victory biggest republican victory since reagan yeah and uh Nobody, still nobody was buying it. So it's probably not going anywhere <laughs> now. But uh, I just thought, what a, what a, as I was reading that, I want a strange way to take your second term with two issues that even in your own party were not that popular. Uh, hopefully we'll, that's taken as a lesson for Biden too, if he were to win, because he was incredibly explicit about several things in this in this last debate about he's not going to, He's not going to eliminate fracking, even though he said he would before. Mm-hmm. No, his uh, his health care plan, as it, as announced, his health care plan on the website versus what he said in the debate are pretty different. Um, we don't have to get, yeah, get deep that, into that, those details. but uh, That is very Trumpian also. Yeah, right. <laughs> just, he, Biden's just up there saying stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so is Trump. It's a weird debate. As Lehman says, Donald Trump is far too bizarre to be precisely replicable as a model for the generic Republican of the future, which I think we'd more or less agree with. Um, yeah. So three competing predictions about the future of the party. These are the three that he came up with. I don't know. These are the only three, but it, it is good food for thought. He says, let's call them remnant, restoration, and reversal scenarios. So what's the remnant scenario? Basically... Finding the next Trump and making him the new Trump. Right. You know, yeah. And he says several, uh, you know, other potential 
I mean, he says the, the best one to carry this out would be Trump Jr., but I think uh, people have shown they're a little tired of dynasties. And I don't yeah. know that Trump Jr. is interested in the job. But he says other people like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley uh, sort of fit into this group. You know, they uh, banging on about China, Silicon Valley, that sort of thing. And just the, uh, the sort of the, uh, the, the forthright personality being on TV. I mean, they're a lot more polished than the president. They, you know, they don't, yeah, they don't cuss or tell off color stories, but they, uh, they have that sort of vibe, you know, where there's, they're going to take it to the enemy, you know, take, take the battle to the enemy in China, in, you know, Palo Alto, wherever it happens to be. And yeah, that's, that's sort of Trumpism without Trump is one option for continuing. Yeah. Notably, these guys don't really talk much about less government. And I think Tom Mm -hmm. Cotton and reminds me of Mike Huckabee also from Arkansas. They, they're not, they really don't come from the free market, less government, you know, wing of the party. Um, and often call for programs to help working people. Josh Hawley has really been the forefront of this. I, I think that Hawley is a better fit for one of the later scenarios, but uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. To I me, that too. like Matt Gates is the kind of guy yeah. who's, uh, you know, Don Jr., Matt Gates, Tucker Carlson, folks who are just, they know how to be angry and, really take it to the left, you know, and really take it to elites denounce. He says, denounce a powerful upper class and their cosmopolitan priorities. That's uh, Tucker Carlson, um, ferocious attacks on elites. Um, and you know, a guy like Matt Gates, who's, who's really there to be, uh, he's a congressman from, from Florida and he's really there to be a, a GOP AOC, you know, like, mm-hmm. in fact, he's, he's very open about the fact that that's what he wants to become is the, the AOC of, of the right. So that's the remnant strategy. And, and it, you kind of feel like if Trump were to win, this is the direction we're going. I think Don Jr. is not realistic here because I mean, frankly, and some listeners are gonna be pissed about me saying this, but do we really believe that Donald Trump senior is going to seed the stage for his son? <laughs> I don't. So, uh, but you know, I guess it's possible, but okay. The next scenario Lehman calls the restoration scenario, which is basically summarized as let's go back to Paul Ryan, you know, let's go back to the free market. Let's go back to the Reagan coalition. It says Republicans would wake up as if from a bad dream and recapture their essential identity from the past hundred years as the party of business. Reagan, like optimistic rhetoric of freedom and enterprise internationalism, alliance-oriented foreign policy, which I would say is more like more Middle East wars into infinity, uh, embrace, at least notionally, um, diversity and immigration. You know, this is where the never-Trumpers really want the, the party to go. Yeah. And he, he names Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, as, as possibilities for that. I, I think that's probably right. But Nikki Haley really is the one. <laughs> he, he names her former governor of South Carolina, who is... Also served President Trump as a UN ambassador, so she has both the Trump bona fides, but then she she herself is without question, you know, part of the 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 Reagan Bush uh, wing of the Republican Party, which I think. So, like the restorationists, he says restorationists r- would regard Trump as a temporary jolt of shock therapy, like sort of like, okay, hey, yeah, that's right, there were some things that maybe we need to tweak around the edges, but we're gonna get back to business. Uh, as we 
you know, had been for the last 35, 40 years. Yeah. I, I don't see this as a big faction, you know, I mean, I don't think there's much there um, because we saw, you know, when the campaign was going on, this, this was like you said, never Trump. And how many never Trumpers were there in the war, in the country? Like 3% maybe. It, it, is that enough to rebuild a party on? And it also sort of, the genie's out in the bottle. You know, it's one of those, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I don't, I don't think there's somebody who can rally people to the ideas of 40 years ago when the ideas of now are pretty popular with the party. I, I don't know. Yeah, so I generally agree with that. I think that more than the never Trumpers, though, the folks that make up this this scenario, the restoration scenario, is basically the the DC industrial complex. Basically, like all of my fellow DC travelers, <laughs> Beltway travelers. Like when it comes to Republicans, I mean, listeners, if you don't know this, like DC Republicans do not like Trump. Full stop. There, are, most of them, very few of them, are actually never Trump. Most of them still vote for Trump and definitely root for him over Biden. But they're, I mean, if, you, if you're saying raise your hand, like who would love to see um, a Trump legacy into the future, uh, you're not going to get very many takers on that. I mean, almost none. And so what it means is those folks do want to get back to where we were before by and large. Now, not all of them. And I think there's definitely a sense that things have changed and we're going to have to fix the parameters of the tent let's say um and and understand that a, a big portion now of the party is going to be uh working class whites in particular but but also hispanics and but but by and large it's kind of like let's let's do what we can to just get back to doing what we were doing before i think that's where the dc establishment is i think that's where the without question is where the donors are so there i think there will be some some real magnetism in that direction. I mean, a real pull. So I think you're right that when it comes to never Trumpers, those guys are not, are not going to have much sway uh, in the party. And most of them are going to be outcasts probably for life. But when it comes to the establishment, I think this is where they want to go. You disagree with that? No, I think, I mean, and you know, those folks better than I do, but I I think you're right. And I, I think there, there's a lot of folks there in this restorationist camp who would who would never speak a word against the president publicly, but if he were to drop out of the race today, they would be incredibly happy. And, you know, that's, that's a, it's a faction. And that's, there's, I have some sympathy for that, but it also seems like now if, as the, the longer the party gets remade, the more it's impossible to unmake it. You know, I mean, you've, you've lost some of the people who made those old strategies work and you've gained new people who were never in on those strategies before and in fact had voted against them. Yeah. So you've got the you got the DC crowd would would be happy to you know uh rip that page out and uh start over pretend nothing happened like when the like the original restoration when the Stuarts came back after Oliver Cromwell and said uh, yeah none of that stuff counts. Those laws are all <laughs> fake now. None, yeah. none of those parliaments were real. And, you know, they could, that's, that's the sort of thing Kings do. And it, it worked kind of, but it didn't take, you know, the changes were real. People don't forget. It's like when the, uh, like when college football says he didn't win some games, it's like, yeah, but we did win them. I watched it. <laughs> you can't right, wipe right, out our right. records. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it happened. And the, the base has changed. 
especially in the direction of this, I think, the uh, the third option here, which is the uh, the reversal scenario. Now, Lehman calls this the least plausible, which is probably why I like it. Um, yeah. But it's the most threatening to Democrats. The parties would essentially switch the roles they've had in the past century. Republicans would replace the Democrats as the party of the people, one with a greater emphasis on progressive economic policies for ordinary families. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, he talks about Rubio's... Um, so he talks about Ru- Marco Rubio uh, pushing the common good capitalism, the sort of you know, the markets are good. Markets are good at you know identifying prices and identifying flaws and things, but they're not an end in themselves. And that's the libertarians hate to hear that. But that's kind of like what we've been talking about a lot here when we talk about <clears throat> why do we have liberty? Why do we have democracy? It's are they ends in themselves? I mean, is the point of having democracy? To have democracy, you know, it's the point of having liberty that that's it. So you can do what you want. That's that's the thing. And it's like they're important, but I think there's a lot of people, including Rubio, who think that the goal is something higher. Like we have liberty to find virtue and we have individual liberty because we think that that's the best way for an individual to find virtue and that imposing one top down solution is not the best. Yeah. But where there are market failures and. Uh, Stephen Hayward had a line in here about that. He had a couple of good lines in this piece, and he's one of the only people who got quoted on the record about how people had people were used to government failures when the Reagan coalition was coming together, and that's why Reagan's small government, efficient government message resonated because we were used. To, I mean, after the you know the Great Society and the stagflation and all of the mess of the seventies in Vietnam, you know, people were ready to say, "Yeah, the government messes up a lot of things. Maybe we should." do less of it maybe we should fix some some of that but what what our biggest problems are now i think are are in a lot of fields our biggest problems are market failures or not market failures but market markets that are working but they're working for bad you know and that's like the uh all of the people who've lost out in globalization all of the you know there are gains from trade but are they evenly distributed are they distributed at all that's the sort of thing i think ruby i was looking at and saying yeah there's Markets are great, but they, if they're not working for the people, why are we doing it? Yeah, and so, I mean, it really, he doesn't talk about this in this article, but I think it really gets to the meritocracy question of, let's, let's say markets are working by and large, but there are folks who are just, 50% of the population is going to be in the bottom half, you know, mm-hmm. 25% of the population is going to be in the bottom quarter, and that's just how it works. He, he quotes this AFL-CIO chart, which was really interesting to me showed the vote in congressional districts ranked by median income from 1960 to today. For most of that time, districts in the bottom 40% of income were far more likely to vote Democratic. But by 2010, the lines had crossed, perhaps because of the financial crisis and so forth. And today, poor districts are far more likely to vote Republican, and richer districts are far more likely to vote Democratic. The 10 richest congressional districts in the country, and 44 out of the richest 50 are represented by Democrats. Now, this is a, go back a couple episodes, and if you haven't listened, listeners, to, uh, we, Kyle wrote some pretty smart articles on, on that very subject, and, and we discussed it in depth. But even this, this journalist is asking, like, could Republicans become the working class party and the, and the Democrats become the party of the prosperous? The reversalists, he says, believe that the Democrats' embrace of market economics and their establishment of a powerful business wing of the Democratic Party, especially in Silicon Valley and Wall Street during the Clinton-Obama administrations, and really now. I mean, that's where Kamala Harris comes from. 
as you point out in your article, mm-hmm. uh, but has left uh, these forgotten people, left them vulnerable to an attack from a new socially conservative, oh, sorry, left Democrats vulnerable to an attack from a new socially conservative and economically liberal strain of Republicanism. And he has that, the, a really good conversation too about reversalist dream of many Latino voters going Republican because they have become uncomfortable with the prevailing political stance that is more liberal on social issues and less liberal on economic issues among college-educated white Democratic voters, which is why during the primary season, he says, potentially be a reason why many Latinos voted for Bernie Sanders because the economic program, what what the reversalists would really be proposing here is that some of the Bernie Sanders stuff be taken and appropriated for themselves. And in fact, he even says that some reversalists have praised Elizabeth Warren and her critique of Wall Street. I mean, I think Tucker Carlson comes to the forefront here. So I mm-hmm. think that's why I was saying, I think Josh Hawley and Tucker Carlson, they are a little bit of the, the remnant, tr- like new Trumps, but I think they fit more in, into this scenario. I really do. And I, th- and I think that, I think this is sold short a little bit by, by Lehman, because I actually think that some version of, of the reversal scenario mixed with the restoration scenario is probably the most likely outcome. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I think the rendement and reversal are not that different. I think Trump is sort of the forerunner of the reversal in that he's his focus on trade is the thing that I think has spurred a lot of people, a lot of uh, working class voters to get on his program. So I think, you know, continuing his policies is sort of what, what Lehman is calling rendement republicanism, but... I think continuing those policies out, you know, and, and uh, sort of sharpening them and doing the sort of thinking about them that Rubio and that uh, Orrin Cass are doing is, I think there's a, a ton of overlap there. Yeah. Um, sort of, and sort of the stuff that, that, that Rubio is saying on the, on the racial issues too, is, is it gets at that same point. Rubio's quoted here saying, I lived in the minority community. I don't think we'd wake up, in the morning and the first thing we'd realize is I'm a Hispanic. The first thing that comes to mind for most people every single day is not your ethnicity. It's the fact that you're a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, employee, volunteer, a coach, somebody who has a role to play. That's that, that is, I mean, that's not the way Trump talks. So you can see why he wouldn't put that as neo-Trumpism after Trump, but it's the policy implications of that are the same as the policy implications of Trumpism. It's just a different attitude. And I, I think it's more likely than Lehman says it's the least likely scenario. I, I, I think there's a lot of cause for that, and for, partly for the reasons I said, is that that's already where the vote the votes are, and increasingly as as registration drives are going on this year, you hear all about new Republicans being registered, and these are the Republicans they're registering, because the the establishment were already registered, the country club was already registered, yeah. they already you know, and maybe some of them have left. If they're getting new Republican voters, it's probably working men and women who were Democrats for either because their local Democratic Party was more in this vein or because they that, you know, their union was Democrat or just family was Democrat. And now they're seeing sort of what what Rubio is talking about and what and what we talked about a couple episodes ago, that this is a, a party of Silicon Valley and Wall Street and doesn't really have a doesn't pay much mind to Youngstown or Gary, Indiana anymore. 
I think those are all great points. And the, the folks who are sort of liberal on social issues, but conservative on economics, a lot of them live in suburbs or they're the conservatives who live in big cities. And a lot of them occupy the beltway too. I mean, those folks have always been Republican, but you could see them starting to inch more. We already are starting to see them inch more democratic, particularly people who work for big corporations and that sort of thing. But I think you're right that, well, to my mind, this, 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 probably this, the strongest force of gravity is going to be the restorationists because that is the, that is the political, the party apparatus and industrial complex. And that's where the money is and that sort of thing. But you're also going to have plenty of folks who are serious about running for president on the Republican side in 2024, who's going to see that the votes are also mm-hmm. on this kind of reversalist side. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I just don't think you can, I think it's fanciful myself to, to think that, a that you could run a, a Jeb Bush campaign of 2016, run it in 2024 and think that's going to win. I mean, maybe it could, who knows? We don't know yet, but I don't think that that's going to work. I think it's going to take somebody who, who has establishment credentials, but <clears throat> also is reaching out to this side. That could be a Nikki Haley. It could be a Rick, uh, Senator Rick Scott from Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, it could, it could be Holly. It could be um, certainly Holly and Rubio will both be in the mix uh, running for president, but I'm sure I think they're going to be reaching out to absolutely reaching out to these voters and, and also seeing, I mean, to me, it's not just work, white working class. It's it's working class across the board, which is a point that uh, that Lehman makes here. Is he says, "What's up for grabs is the working class vote, not just working class white, working class across the board." So, does what President does what President Trump tapped into have to be racial? Can it be about what neoliberalism has done to the country? In other words, against the elites. I mean, I think you're you're already seeing that with a with a Holly with a Rubio who is Hispanic himself, moving away from maybe some of the racial overtones and focusing on just reaching out to folks as again what, uh, the conversation we had in our previous podcast, like what used to be the the base of the New Deal coalition, the uh, the forgotten man who was all white before, but is now multiple colors. And there's a message out there, especially you know if you sideline a little bit more some of the the more um extreme kind of white identitarian voices yeah and just focus on like the economic issues yeah and i think the voice matters and that's that's probably the biggest thing you can say against trump is that the the voice turns people off before they even have a chance to listen to the words because just the way he talks about certain people certain groups it if somebody talks about you that way you're not going to listen a lot of times most times, I think. But what he's done, and I think, I, I always come back to the trade issues, and I think it matters because it's about jobs, and it's about, you know, the sort of jobs that held together families and communities in the past. And, you know, we're that doesn't mean that everything is going to go back to how it was, just like the restorationists will not go back to how it was in 2004. You know, having a different trade policy with, with China is not going to take us back to 1962. But it's going to change some things. At least people hope so. And yeah, that that combined with a message that's maybe less abrasive, I think, is is a winner with what's becoming the realigned Republican Party. Yeah, and if there's a, if there's any at least pretty solid good news out there, is that 
I don't see a place in any scenario where the neoconservatives, like the folks who, who are just war hungry, get to be at the top anytime <laughs> soon. Yeah, and this right. makes up the bulk of the never Trumpers. Let's be honest. All right. What's your, what's your closing thoughts? Um, well, you know, it's, uh, it's like the, uh, the old cliche about economist articles always ending with something at a crossroads. Well, that, that is where we are. The Republican party is at a crossroads. And, uh, I think Lehman did a good job of breaking down possible paths. I disagree with, uh, the weight he put on all of them. I think maybe, maybe cause I'm not, inside the beltway myself i don't realize how much power those folks have over the party but i think they didn't if they have it they didn't have it in 2016 because they they got a candidate they didn't want and that that's up to the voter and uh, i think the voter the average voter in the republican primary is changing and that means the party is changing and that means the democrat party is going to change too and i don't want to predict which will happen i mean i i've predicted the wrong winner in the last three presidential elections and uh, i'll probably do it again this time so i i don't <laughs> i don't i don't tend to make public predictions anymore but uh something uh, i think change is coming and i i will say i don't think we can just uh close the book on trumpism and have a jeb restoration yeah that's and i just add i think that it's going to be it's going to be pretty darn interesting and i don't want to say that i'm excited because it's not quite that but i am really interested to see where things go because i think for the first time in in my political lifetime it's it it seems like there could uh, we could just go some very interesting directions and uh especially if uh if trump loses which uh, he may not so who knows all right that was our special episode nicholas lehman catch us next time for our regular fare. Thanks.